Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. All right. Hello and welcome to the American Reformer podcast. Um, today we've, uh, we're having a, a very special guest. Uh, you've got, as always, uh, Josh Abatori, the executive director. You've got Tymon Klein, uh, the associate editor of, of the journal. And then uh, with us today is Hunter Baker, um, uh, Dr. Hunter Baker. Uh, he, he is a professor at my dear alma mater in, in political science um, he's also the Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Union University. He's the author of a number of books. Um, Hunter, you, you did run for Congress. Um, I was uh, really uh, eagerly watching that and, and pulling for you. Uh, but you've been a, a very prominent voice, Baptist voice, in um, religion and politics for 20 years now. Uh, you're at my alma mater. We're both Baptists. Uh, a lot in common. Really grateful for you making the time to come on today. And, uh, you know, we're all about religion and politics here. So really looking forward to this conversation. I'm excited to be here. And uh, <clears throat> I'm also excited about what you guys are doing with the American Reformer. Uh, I think it's a I think it's a really cool publication worth reading. Th- thank you. Thank you. And um, we hope uh, we hope to run you uh, run you soon. Um, so, you know, one, one of these days we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll work on you. But uh so, so um, this was sort of instigated by an exchange you and I had on Twitter, uh, just to go from the sublime to the really ridiculous. Like, um, I, I don't even, I, I think we were commenting, I was commenting on SCOTUS and you, you were agreeing with me. And, um, but but we, we did get a little bit into different approaches in terms of tone and, and cultural engagement. And I think it's probably fair to say, like, you're generally uh, fairly winsome, Right. Um, you yeah, uh, yeah. Strong, strong, strong believer in yeah. the winsomeness approach. Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, we're the I'm, I'm the guy who runs the journal that has had a lot of critiques of winsomeness. Uh, and, you know, people who follow me probably know I'm somewhere to the right of Attila the Hun and, you know, not shy about it on, on Twitter and all of that. Um, but I think we're both good sports and I think we're you know, there's some mutual respect. And so I think that um, I, I think this is. You know, we, we got into a little bit how about our formative experiences in education have perhaps informed the cultural engagement approaches that we take. I think there's a ton to that. I think there's a, a little bit of a generational difference, too, I'd love to dig into. Um, but just to start it off, I think you said, and I would love to hear you elaborate on this, but your, your formative experiences were at Baylor, um, where you got your Ph.D., and uh, – you know, there, I, I assume, had reps um, convincing moderates, convincing people to your left. Um, and so t- can you tell us a little bit about that formative experience and the successes that you saw with your engagement strategies there? Yeah, and I, I would even go back further. <clears throat> you know, so I really think that there tends to be a difference between people who go to Christian schools and people who go to public schools. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, my... My first college was so I was in public school all the way through. Baylor was the first, you know, ostensibly Christian school that I ever attended. Uh, <clears throat> I was in a huge Florida public school for high school. Um, went to Florida State University, and then the University of Georgia, and then the University of Houston. 
Uh, <clears throat> but in all of those places, um, I was in the position of being a deeply in the minority conservative, deeply in the minority Christian. Um, and so I knew that I was very easily dismissed. Uh, and so for that reason, I felt that I had to kind of um, be the better person, be the be the person with the 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 better conduct, the higher character in the exchange uh, so that what I said would have to be listened to. Um, and I, you know, sort of the feedback that I had from other people was that that was effective. A lot of other conservatives and or Christians would be unwilling to speak. But I can't tell you the number of times in isolated hallways or parking lots, you know, or things like that, people would approach me and say, I just want to thank you for what you said in class today. You know, and I would always be thinking, why didn't you say something? Right. But but they were they were grateful that I had uh, made the point that needed to be made and made it well uh, and at least caused there to be some consideration. So that's kind of that's kind of the experience in those public university context. Now at Baylor, uh, I don't know if, if anybody really realizes, I mean, we wrote a book about it called, um, the Baylor project for St. Augustine's press some years ago, but Baylor was an incredible opportunity. Um, Robert Sloan was president of Baylor from 1995 to 2005. He had been, uh, educated at Princeton and uh, Basel, undergrad Baylor, but then at Princeton and Basel. Um, so he had the, he had the credentials. Um, and when he became president of Baylor in 1995, total out of the, out of nowhere, dark horse candidate, um, he was committed to attempting to restore Baylor to a, a real engaging Christian faith. Uh and people may say, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is there is nothing like a comprehensive, you know, sort of Carnegie One university in the United States that has that position. Uh, you know, they, they are, none of them are, are seriously Christian. And, I, you know, I might even include Notre Dame uh, in saying that. Notre Dame, Notre Dame, I don't think, hires people uh, with much of an eye toward their Christian commitment. Uh, so... So what we were trying to do at Baylor, what Robert Sloan was trying to do was to have that one place, right? That one comprehensive university that is that is also Baptist and evangelical. Uh, he made tremendous progress, right? Um, but so so in that context, I was there uh, doing my PhD work in my thirties. From 2003 to 2007, you know, part of that being long distance, uh, the, the the latter part. Um, but what I saw was was that it was an incredible struggle to to try to achieve this at Baylor. Uh, and the reason, part of the reason I'm so committed to the winsome approach is is that I observed that you had kind of you had this group on the right, and we'll just conveniently say the right, who were the devout Christians. You had this group on the left who were, you know, in theory, Baptists, uh, uh, you know, with with 
a view of church-state separation that I would call secularism, not church-state separation. Um, and then you had this this large group in the middle. And um, so what it seemed to me is that the the people in the middle were the key to holding on to the project. Um, I have to say that that ultimately I think that I think that we lost uh, because a lot of people lost their nerve, but but it was critical not to lose people by being seen as rude or aggressive or obnoxious. You know, it it's almost like diplomacy, right? You're trying to you're trying to mm-hmm. win people over to something, and so uh, from my perspective, that was the only way that we even had a chance of prevailing. Um, you know, I just, I just didn't think there was any promise in a, in a different approach. So, and, and, um, maybe we have to understand sort of how Baylor works and what some of the rules are by which power is wielded there. But I mean, this is presumably Sloan had some board support, but they also didn't want him coming in as a, a midnight executioner, you know, the smiling executioner, just, you know, firing everybody. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, that is true. You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, he was always, he was always uh in that kind of a tenuous position right it's like on the one hand i think that i think that the board wanted him to do what he was doing but on the other hand they were vulnerable to public perception yeah and 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 unlike um you know like you look at southern baptist theological seminary right that moeller has the backing of the conservative resurgence and you know uh, i think gets a lot of acclaim in the convention for you know, uh, cleaning house at Southern. Um, but, uh, but unlike that Baylor is not subject to any sort of denominational control. I think there's a historic affiliation with uh, some Baptist conventions, right? But. Well, yeah. So a really, really important piece of the puzzle is that Baylor had been formally affiliated with the Baptist general convention of Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, boy, it's a really crazy story. Uh, the way uh, the the skullduggery and the the spycraft that was employed to to kind of pull off uh, detaching via board action from the from the Baptist convention in Texas. Um, so Sloan comes in a few years after that had occurred, and while other people were celebratory, he was worried because he knew. Uh, from a lot of the work that has been done on secularization in higher education, that uh, one of the things that is almost always a hallmark of secularization is that you break off from the sponsoring denomination. Uh, and he didn't want that to happen to Baylor. You know, he didn't want Baylor to become just another big private school. Um, you know, Baylor's slogan is, uh, you know, pro ecclesia, pro Texana, uh, but he knew that it could easily become just pro Texana and not the not the not the pro ecclesia, and he was determined to try to prevent that. Yeah, and uh, you know we're now in a funny situation in Texas, given recent legislative reform here, that our public universities may very well be moving significantly to the right of Baylor. <laughs> um, you know, A and M has been a been a conservative institution for a long time um, in a lot of ways. Uh, but with recent legislation, I mean, we just this session, the legislature passed um, uh, banned DEI offices in public universities here in Texas um, to, to a lot of outrage. And, you know, look, I mean, the universities can retitle the same function and try to play games like that to, to avoid the, the effect of the legislation. But 
the fact of the matter is that what's happening politically right now in a lot of red states is they are getting very interested in bending their public institutions to the political will of their state. I mean, this is maybe most clearly happening in Florida. The education department of Florida is getting remade. Uh, what's happening at new college in uh, Sarasota. Um, you know, they are, they are working with very hard nosed operators who know how higher ed works to remake those public institutions. I mean, we all know in red States that the public, public universities are significantly out of step with political will, but um, it it leads to an interesting scenario, I think, where a erstwhile, you know, place like Baylor that might've used to be on the right uh, relative to the other options is is now actually going to be an outlier to the left. Yeah. uh, I mean, so, so I don't want to paint Baylor worse than it is. I mean, I'm, uh, so I actually worked for Sloan when he was president there. I was, you know, as an older graduate student, I kind of had sort of a, double fellowship situation where I was working for him as well. And um, they achieved an awful lot during that period. Uh, you know, he, he, he may have hired something like 400 faculty members uh, during his decade uh, and took Baylor to an entirely different uh, economic situation. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that, is that one way you could think of Baylor as being highly balkanized. Um, there are, there are, pockets of significant conservatism and, and Christian orthodoxy in the university. Uh, and there are places that go the opposite way. So it's a very complex, uh, situation, um, with regard to the other schools. Yeah, I'm super interested. I mean, I think that, so you and I talked about my admiration for Aaron Wren, uh, Aaron has a really good understanding of, of how institutions work and, uh, how conservatives have failed by by being quick to leave institutions um, and also by not being willing to to kind of engage in the institutional slog. Uh, mm-hmm. So it will be interesting to see what happens with these new moves in Texas and Florida. You know, when I was uh, when I was a law student in the nineties. There was a there was a legal decision. I want to call it the Hopwood decision that that in theory was banning the use of race and admissions in the law schools in Texas. And, you know, they they very quickly found a way to to get around that. Uh, And my anticipation is, is that is that the same thing will be done in earnest uh, in reaction to the recent court decision. But you're right. I mean, uh, there's there's still the matter of of state law and and state regulations and uh, how those things are enforced and how they can be tied to funding mechanisms. So maybe there's some promise. I I, I completely agree that the latest SCOTUS decision that just came down this term that again on its face bans affirmative action. Um, I agree that that these universities will find a way to circumvent it. Um, you know. Uh, They've already, uh, to a large degree, uh, expressed, like elite universities at least, are very explicit about, they, they view their function as basically being finishing schools for people into the elite. And um, they're, they're very self-conscious about that role that they play. They have been for years. And at the same time, some of them have been actually de-emphasizing or even eliminating the need for standardized testing and things like that. I could actually see this decision being a um, like a further uh, an accelerant for a move away from uh, academic meritocracy toward 
um, just more of a explicit embrace of this idea that we're here to pick the we're here to pick leaders basically uh, for yeah, society a, and yeah it's a caste system uh, when you get to that point I mean yeah so I mean I look at uh, I mean Josh so you you went to Harvard Law um, mm-hmm. my my guess would be is that that was in large part through a really good LSAT score <laughs> you know something like that it was in I yeah, mean, it my, was largely through an LSAT score yeah yeah. And, and my father, uh, my father grew up in a family that was uh, that had nothing but farming and blue collar factory work in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he went to Vanderbilt in the 1960s because he was strong academically and, you know, and, and really good at math and uh, really good SAT score, uh, which which then transforms the trajectory of my family. Right. Yeah. Uh, this these new moves, I think, are are actually retrogressive in that sense. Uh, you know, there there are people who will who will not have those opportunities if they if they take away sort of those meritocratic kind of devices. Yeah, that's. I think that's exactly right. Um, and and we can yeah. you know there there will be you know disfavored demographics, not all demographics, but there will be certain demographic groups you know who used to have. Um, a path to uh, economic mobility through standardized testing that, you know, I mean, frankly, that was a, that was always a historical exception, right? Uh, Like the Ivy leagues and elite universities were not meritocratic until maybe the fifties or sixties, they were finishing schools for new, new England elites or or whatever else. Um, And for a brief window of time, uh, they were, they were fairly meritocratic. And so it's it's interesting. Uh, this isn't necessarily like a total departure from historical behavior, but uh, serving a new and sort of different elite and shutting the door on on some uh, some disfavored demographic groups. But uh, but yeah, let me shift a little bit. I, I think that getting your experiences at Baylor on the table and your understanding of institutional change, I think I think this kind of tees up um, a shift. You know, I think that. I think that the question of cultural and political engagement is largely, you know, when, when we have uh, disagreements or, you know, maybe would have a different approach in a particular context, you know, this is all prudential stuff. I mean, I think largely, right. Like I'm not, you know, neither of us is saying like, here's this Bible verse that says you're, you know, way off base. It's a, it's a prudential question. It's largely a question of like allocation of resources. I think like, um, we, we all have limited time and limited resources and like what kinds of fights do we think are prudent to pick? And, um, you know, I would say that, yes, I, I went to, I went to Harvard law from 2012 to 2015. And, um, during that time, I mean, I was a little bit of a, I was a little bit of a gadfly for sure. You know, the conservative kid in class that would always take the other side, but there were limits to that because I was uh, I was taking on over two hundred thousand dollars in debt, and I had to get a, a job at a mainstream law firm who didn't want headline risk. And so there were there were yeah. there was limits. I had friends who who lost offers for being politically outspoken, and and I didn't I didn't want that to happen to me. I had a young family, so I I pushed within bounds. Um, but I would also say I grew to I grew to actually resent what I viewed as a pretty oppressive and stultifying intellectual environment. I mean, even even yeah. back then, this was before the height of Me Too. But in criminal law, um, you know, we were talking. Um, we would have like a class where we talked about um, we were talking about sexual crimes and the evidentiary standards that should be met in those crimes. 
And as you know, like this has been an area of the law where, you know, like most other areas of our law, we used to have requirements like, you know, two witnesses or, you know, other corroborating evidence. That evidentiary standard over time has been um, softened and reduced um, in large part, I, I think, as a response to uh, feminist uh, activism on these issues. And, uh, you know, th- this is a very live issue. And it's also an area of law where um, <laughs> if you're talking about like, you know, the, the, the poor kid who grew up in Baltimore and sells drugs, we, we want very high evidentiary standards in that case. And lefties advocate for extremely high evidentiaries in, in a case like that. But then on the flip side, they get to sexual assault and they're sort of advocating for extremely low evidentiary standards. And they'll take like a, you know, now the situation is generally a he said, she said, uh, we'll get to the jury without any other evidence and they can convict and send somebody to jail. And it's sort of uh, sui generis relative to a lot of other criminal regime, criminal law regimes. Um, So this sounds like that's great. You're at Harvard Law School. You should have sharp minds be able to debate that. No. You, you should not debate that. <laughs> it is imprudent to argue about that as a student um, because of what that will do yeah. to your sort of standing. And I mean, I one of my good friends uh, made some of his opinions known uh, during discussions about that and was literally hissed at and called a fascist um, for, you know, so, so the, these. Um, you can you can figure you know during that time period we had gay marriage was was ascendant um i'm pretty sure i got a bad grade in a class because i took a certain position on my final on gay marriage now, now what, um i was about to say the class the, the finals were are still graded anonymously aren't they in law school they are they are yeah um okay. you took a, it was the substance yeah yeah i i'm i'm yeah. convinced that i took i took con law from martha minnow the dean of the school at that time a famous crit and you know crt proponent and uh yeah um i uh i sort of knew i you know i knew it'd probably get me in trouble and you know i i studied hard i was generally a pretty good student there i didn't get uh you know i got the equivalent of a b on that one uh and i thought it was the best exam i ever wrote but i took the i took the traditional side of the obergefell question and I'm convinced to this day that's that's what happened there. Um, but you know, overall, I guess here, here's what I'm here's where I'm driving to. Um, the, the formative experiences I've had give me an instinct that would say, um, "Look, we've got limited time. We can spend something on persuasion." Um, I am probably increasingly less sanguine about the the strategic benefits of, of the persuasion strategy relative to strengthening Christian institutions, leaning into own space and actually having institutions that we control where we don't have to operate on persuasion. And then we can actually do like affirmative, confident, bold knowledge creation without looking over our shoulder or asking for acceptance from the mainstream Academy. Um, We need to get to the work of creating alternative knowledge. Like we need sociologists doing studies about what's going on to the family. And some of them do, and they're great. We need way more of that. We need, we need independent scholarship. That's not subject to the oppressive uh, guilds that control the mainstream academic, uh, academic world. Yeah. So, so it's important. um, It's important to concede uh, what you're saying about your experience. I mean, so my, my time has gone, all the way across all of this, right? So like uh, me at Florida State University, 1988 to 1991, 
totally different environment, right? I could be, I could be as conservative as I wanted. Um, and, and that might be unpopular, but, uh, honest to goodness, my experience of professors was that they thought that free speech was important. Free thought was important. Uh, you know, they would, they would kind of have these lines that I may disagree with what you say, but I'll fight to the, to the death to protect your right to say it. Right. You know, um, totally different environment. And and of course there's no social media. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's not even, not even any email. Okay. Uh, So, so a totally and completely different environment. And, and likewise for my, for my subsequent study at the university of Georgia uh, in public administration. Um, And and again, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I do feel sorry for what you experienced at Harvard because, because it's an indictment of Harvard. Harvard is supposed to be our best, right? Now I was at uh, University of Houston, I and, and I went there because my wife was doing a medical residency at Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, but I had a fantastic experience there. You know, the mm-hmm. uh, I had a I had a super liberal um, constitutional law professor, Irene Rosenberg. She and her husband—they're both like New York Orthodox Jews, but politically left as left as it gets. Irene and Yale Rosenberg. Uh, but they both had these strong intellectual virtues, right? I yeah. mean, I could push, uh, I could say what, you know, one time I even caught Irene Rosenberg in class, you know, uh, on, on kind of a point and, you know, she just stopped and she said, uh, Mr. Baker, you're a very thoughtful conservative, right? You know, I, I guess you didn't see many moments like that, uh, at Harvard. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> Yeah, look, I'm not, I mean, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't traumatized. I think the effect was clarifying, if anything, right? And, and I, you know, I will say, like, I, I had some, you know, I got the opportunity to take some classes with Robbie George, you'd come up and do visiting, you know, classes there. Yeah. And, um, you know, there were, there were some actually, I uh, got to be in a reading group with Vermeule while he was going through his conversion there as well. Uh, so, so got, got a front row seat to some of the early integralism stuff. Uh, so, so it was, you know, look, I mean, it, it's, even, even in its like somewhat decayed state, uh, law school is a great education. I think the Socratic method is fantastic intellectual formation. Um, I yeah. think it sharpens everyone. Um, you know, and it, I don't, I don't mean to say like I, I certainly had some very good professors who were committed to this. Now I think kind of quaint viewpoint that uh, you know th- this is a place for for open dialogue. But I, I do think the thing that that sort of changed, and it, it actually changed over the arc of my career in law was um, we started uh, mainstream institutions started losing that commitment or, you know, they could say, okay, fine. You've got the civil right to say what you want, of course, but you're not free from the consequences of expressing that opinion. I think there's been a very real, there's been a very real collapse and sort of that non-political commitment to free speech ideals uh, both in educational institutions and then in employers, right? So I, um, I've graduated Harvard Law and I want to go practice law doing like oil and gas, you know, private equity work in Houston, Texas. I mean, what, you know, that if at the time you'd think, man, if you can get to a corner of the world that's, that's very unlike Harvard, people just care about making money and, you know, that's about yeah. as best as you can do. But um, 
you know, even even there with with the law firms and then the pressures on public corporations, um, you know, started to see a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of wokeness, a lot of DEI. And then ESG's emergence in the last several years has been uh, has been really incredible to behold, especially with the majors in the oil industry and the private equity firms getting behind it. Um, and yeah. the result of all of that is, you know, the, the um, you know, even like even in a major law firm or a corporation, there's now significant, uh, you know, social pressure and kind of, you know, you, you as, a, as an employee, especially a more junior employee, um, you, you know, your, your silence is kind of being bought. Like you can't, you, you really can't, uh, they're not going to fire you for what's in your brain, of course. But if you, if you wanted to be like an engaged member of your community, join the boards of organizations that you like, um, you know, exercise any kind of cultural leadership or express your opinions publicly, um, you'd better not be, you know, you, you have to be very, very cautious about that if, if you're going to do it at all. Um, and, and I think that is a meaningful change. I, I, you know, I kind of pegged this to the, um, you remember Brandon Ike being fired at Mozilla? Yes. Oh, I mean, that was, that was very chilling. Yeah. For, for a modest, really modest gift that he gave to the Prop 8 campaign out there for traditional company, marriage. Company that he co-founded. Yeah. Co-founded, uh, yeah, $1,000 donation uh, to, to, a, to a proposition that actually won in California. Yeah. In a year when Barack Obama was elected. Uh, so, yeah, that's pretty shocking. I, that, that alarmed me deeply. And you mentioned ESG. Uh, ESG really scares me uh, mm-hmm. because because to me what it represents is um, we're we're going to we're going to accept the fact that we can't control everything through the mechanisms of politics, and we're going to find a way to extend these same sort of pressures to the free market. Right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, basically, I just imagine an octopus that has to that has to touch everything. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's deeply alarming. I, I heard a story a couple months ago. This, this actually shocked me. The CEO of a public oil company was going through a, uh, they were going through a debt raise, right? They were going to get a, a new debt facility drawn. And, you know, when you do this, just like with individuals, companies get credit ratings. So like there's, you know, S and P or these other companies will give it, assign you a credit rating. Well, you now get an ESG rating from your bank and there's agencies that will issue an ESG rating and those will impact the interest rate on your loan. And this uh, public uh, this public oil and gas company CEO was instructed to tweet out like sort of a manifesto about uh, the importance of fighting climate change. He refused and his debt got 25 bips more expensive as a direct result of his refusal to tweet out the manifesto. Wow. Like this is wow. – you know, th- this is why this is why a lot of these corporations are responding. It hits their bottom line, and it's it's like a non-economic. It's sort of irrational from like a market perspective, right? It's it's uh, uh, so yeah, it's it's uh, and it's not. I, I I think I mean maybe maybe it's slowing down, um, but to the extent it is, it's it's probably because you know right wing consumers and other people are able to make examples of some of the worst actors um and you know maybe maybe to the extent that can happen um or you know or people are just making really good money by taking betting on the other side of ESG to the extent that can happen maybe it moderates the behavior of these massive organizations but um 
you know, I don't, we can't rely on just the operation of nature or, you know, drift to, to remove ESG from our, from our, uh, from our corporate behavior, it's going to be a fight and uh, it's going to require some pretty smart people working hard. Um, yes. But, yes. Hey, um, I, I would kind of like to, uh, you know, at some point we should probably bring Timon in here uh, so we can start talking about Christian nationalism. I'm sure that'll get him uh, all fired up. But uh, right. uh, Hunter, I listened to a talk you gave with the Braver Angels uh, a couple of days ago with, with Dan Darling and you were giving, it sounds like a fairly mixed audience and you were giving sort of an intro to Christian nationalism. Very. Very mixed. Yeah. Yeah, probably. So in, in Braver Angels, we have a we have a red, blue, even divide rule uh, for who attends the conference. But um, but yes, there were certainly many people in the audience who would be highly skeptical of Christian nationalism. And 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 that's um, it's a very classically liberal thing to do. Right. It's to like being an organization committed to uh, to having you know, completely diverse representation politically. Um, But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, I thought it was a a really interesting talk. Um, You know, I think that, uh, I think that you've uh, pretty clearly read the books, you know, you've read Stephen, sounds like, you know, Stephen Wolf, you read his work. Um, You know, you, you you know, uh, I think you've got some critiques of Christian nationalism, but I would say like, you know, it seems that you're pretty well acquainted and gave a pretty fair overall representation of, of, what it stands for and also, you know, uh, perhaps uh, contrasting it with the caricatured view that Whitehead and Perry and, and others might, might advance about it. Um, yes. I, I'm interested, you know, I, I've never embraced the Christian nationalism label per se. I'm, I'm probably like um, sympathetic to a lot of it. And I would also say like a, a very sharp critic of late 20th century liberalism, but you've done a lot of work on critiquing Rawls. I, I read your piece in, um, Andrew Walker's edited volume about, you know, Robbie George and you, you talk, you know, talk through George's critique of Rawls and you, you've studied a lot of this stuff, but what, to what extent, you know, this is, I, I would say pushing back on late 20th century liberalism is one of the core components of a lot of Christian nationalists. You know, um, if you get, if you roll back like Warren, you know, Warren court jurisprudence, maybe even reach a little further, you know, overturn Everson you're getting to a situation where states could have established religions. We could argue yeah. about the prudence of that, but yeah. you're also getting back to a situation where states can enforce obscenity laws, where they can have prayer in schools and put the 10 commandments in front of their courthouse. I would say that most like of the thoughtful Christian nationalists, if you told them you can get back to an arrangement that's kind of similar, like to what we had from the founding until 1950, they're all going to jump on board for that. They're going to be very happy with that outcome. But, but I would like to hear, um, you know, your thoughts, like how do you distinguish late 20th century liberalism from classical yeah. liberalism? And can, can your project be like in co-belligerency with, with uh, the Christian nationalists, perhaps as expressed by, by Stephen Wolf? Yeah. So, so I am, um, I am never that person who is really, uh, attacking the Christian nationalists. You know, I mean, I, um, I like Stephen. Uh, I think Stephen is incredibly brave. Uh, I, uh, I like Doug Wilson and I have been out to new St. Andrews to speak, uh, have been to what I've been corrected to say is Moscow, Idaho, not Moscow, Idaho. Um, 
And uh, so, you know, and I, the, the owned space kind of thing, I totally get that, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so I'm coming at this from a couple of different ways. First of all, uh, as a Baptist, um, I, I believe that, uh, that the Baptist tradition is basically correct in the way it looks at the church state uh, settlement of things. Um, that the the regenerate church model is superior to what might be called the comprehensive church model, um, you know, and we could we could get into a discussion of that, um, but but with regard to your questions about liberalism, I think that that what has happened in the late twentieth century, uh, I think you're accurate to kind of point to that, is that we began to abandon the idea of self-government. I think that these later forms of of liberalism, what you have is uh, an increasing loss of the ability of communities to govern themselves um, through two devices. One is the courts. Um, You know, the courts increasingly take on this platonic philosopher king sort of a sort of an approach. Uh, I mean, look, you and I both went to law school, uh, I don't think that going to law school actually makes you the wisest uh, moral philosopher of all time, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I think that, I think I love law school. Law school was great for me, but I don't think that it entitled me to usurp self-government from other human beings. Yeah, uh, yeah. Can we, I can I hop in on that? I mean, it, it trains yeah. you really well to handle a contract dispute or to uh, like adjudicate a torts case. Or something, but it doesn't. That 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 sort of analysis is different in kind than the analysis that you know you have to do to say is the unborn uh, fetus a human person, right? Like, like it's not. That's exactly right. Yeah. No. And actually, the first thing that I ever wrote for scholarly publication was I I wrote a piece critiquing uh, Justice Blackman's work in Roe v. Wade. But it's just it's ridiculous. It's like it's like Blackman you know, goes home from the court session, goes to the Mayo Clinic library, sits down and writes this freaking thing. It's like, what the heck? I mean, you know, just like he's suddenly the world's greatest authority in this matter. It's it's utterly ridiculous. Uh, but so there's that, this kind of court usurpation. Um, and, and by the way, that has gotten much worse, right? I mean, mm-hmm. when I was in law school in the late 90s, uh, <clears throat> this same Irene Rosenberg that I talked about, we talked about the deference to the states, right? You know, if we're, if we're just on plain old rational basis uh, standard, um, she said, well, the, the states would only ever be overturned in a rational basis case if, if they were completely and utterly irrational. And we're like, well, what, what's an example of that? She said, you know, if the state said, uh, everybody can only wear a green shoe on their left foot on Tuesday. That would be irrational, right? And the court would overturn that. Well, uh, you know, in the uh, what's the what's the original sodomy case? Reynolds versus Texas is that Lawrence? It? Lawrence versus Texas. Uh, you know th- that law was overturned on the rational basis standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there's no way you can argue that it's just utterly irrational. Right. I mean, you can certainly make that a rational. You may disagree with it, but you can certainly make it a rational case. So uh, so that's like this this lack of deference to people's sense of self-government on steroids. 
Uh, and then so besides the judicial usurpation of self-government, then you have the administrative law usurpation mm-hmm. um, of the type that Hayek talks about uh, in The Road to Serfdom. And eventually people are not meaningfully governing themselves. Now, I I, um, I bet you both Timon and I agree on the critique of of both the administrative state and judicial supremacy. Um, I think that where do we go from here is is an interesting question, though, right? So, in in perhaps my my inclination to that is as as uh, as unfortunate as I think that is, um, I look at I read our founders and how steep they were in Polybius and theories of regime cycles and and their their intimate knowledge of the fact that at our founding we were we had high civic virtue, right? Like I mean, even just like our literacy rates. I mean, it, you know. We had pioneers on the frontier building cabins and then reading Polybius and Cicero in the Latin at night, you know, after they got done working the farm. And we were, we did have a pretty exceptional sort of founding stock. The constitution was framed for them. I mean, you can go through all the, you know, cliche quotes, right? John Adams, the constitution is made for moral people and not fit for any other. Yeah. There is a, I I think the question before (laughs) us would be, um, is insisting on a return to let's call them the proper Republican norms. Is that um, perhaps a futile attempt because we don't, we now lack the civic virtue. We actually are not in, in some sense are no longer fit for self-governance or, you know, alternatively, which if that's the case, then that would mean conservatives would need to lean into, I would just say a, a bit more of a Machiavellian approach with politics um, but if that's if that's the case, if it's not the case, um, you know, then then this uh, continuing to advocate for our old constitution, our real what, what really properly is our constitution, would be a, would be a good strategy. But but what's your what's your take on that? Yeah, well, so so Machiavelli definitely understands this situation. I mean, you know, one of the things that he talks about is that the the government of a people, the regime is going to depend on who the people are, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, you know, back in those days, one of the old tropes was was that people from people from warm, sunny places are uh, tend to be less virtuous and industrious than people from cold, unforgiving places, right? <laughs> uh, which is probably true. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think that uh, that we we face this same kind of a problem. Uh, you know, you cannot, you cannot construct a skyscraper out of wood. It can't be done, right? It's got to be, it's got to be steel. Uh, and, and likewise, we have to look at, at our regime and how free we can be. I mean, one thing I will just tell you, Josh, uh, I am terrified by the change that I observe in young people over the period during which I have been teaching. Uh, you know, the first time I ever taught was when I was a grad assistant at University of Georgia, 92 through 94. If I, if I look back there and all the way forward to now, I see young people becoming less and less capable and more and more fragile. Uh, so in terms of what kind of citizenship that produces, I, you know, maybe, maybe, Maybe the more we become that way, the less we will want to govern ourselves. Um, 
and will and will simply want somebody to sort of uh, provide for us and nurture us. Uh, what I am trying to do with a project like Braver Angels, and for that matter, as a college professor, is I am I am trying to help people be the kind of uh, self-reliant, intellectually critical and thoughtful people who are capable of governing themselves. Um, so I guess, I guess the option that you didn't say is commit to a project of trying to renew the citizenry. That's, that's what I would like to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I think that's, I, I think that's completely worthwhile, like absolutely important, essential work, like to be clear. And I, I don't, I'm not, um, I'm not demeaning that I, my, my instinct here might be to say, that's great. That should happen. But at the same time, the other thing that should happen in tandem with that is the right wing needs to express that we are willing to act like Machiavellians, especially on the federal (laughs) stage. If we need to, we need to have the credible threat of hard power. And that's going to look different. But I I think part of it is like you got a governor over a red state like DeSantis you yeah. use that power. Like he's great. I mean, yeah. pull the, find where those levers are, pull them without a lot of hesitation. Um, you know, just the classic political stuff, punish, punish enemies, reward friends. Like we need to show a willingness to do that because if we don't, um, we're going to get run over and, and we can do that. I think in tandem with um, a project of, of, uh, of trying to renew citizenship, spark civic renewal, um, and I don't know the formula I've been I've been playing with, and maybe I'll write on this at some point. But it's it's essentially where the conditions allow it. Lean into Republican governance at a local level, at a state level. It's great. It's the best way to. It's the best form of government you can have if you have a, a virtuous citizenry. But then um, I think be a Machiavellian at the federal level. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I get that. Um... You know, there's always the case that that when you have cancer, chemotherapy may be needed. <laughs> and so, so maybe maybe I see these kind of Machiavellian tactics as as the chemotherapy, the shock to the system. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm I I do get into a very uncomfortable place on this stuff because look, I mean, when uh, when Mitch McConnell refused to hold hearings on a on a Supreme Court justice toward the end of Barack Obama's term, uh, there was part of me that was really kind of distressed about that because I felt like we needed to sort of uphold the the process and the procedure. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, obviously I have been happy with the result of mm-hmm. that. Uh, so, you know, I feel very conflicted over that. That's that's a oh, that's a beautiful example because that's a. Um... Mitch wasn't like breaking the constitution or anything. He was, he was violating a Senate norm. Right. Yeah. And yeah, the Senate was the greatest deliberative body in the world. And part of that was because they, they had these norms in place that they used to ensure quality deliberations and mutual respect and that sort of thing. And I mean, I think we can probably say it's a secular trend that those norms have been breaking down, right? It's not, you know, we, 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 you can't go back and say, oh, it's all the Democrats' fault or it's all the Republicans' fault. Like, this is just as a descriptive matter. Both sides have gotten – there's been an uh, escalation in uh, destroying the, the norms that used to govern that body. And, um, you know, I, I, think, I think it's a fascinating 
I think an example for, for sort of new right people like, like me or Timon, um, you know, I think we might say that's, um, it's unfortunate that it's, that the norm has been lost, but it's also inevitable. And in fact, um, Republicans must be willing to do that. Otherwise they're essentially going to play a rigged game where they're, they're, uh, if you're playing a board game and your opponent is cheating and you keep on referencing the rule book, um, that's a rigged game. You're, you're going to lose that over time. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, something that I think is relevant to all this is I look at uh, I look at the situation with the University of Florida um, and the appointment of Ben Sass to the presidency. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> when I look at that, now, you know, so you have Ron DeSantis as the governor. You have a very popular Republican Party in the state. Um, and I look at the way the left reacts, right? They react as though it is completely illegitimate for Ben Sass to be the president of the University of Florida. Uh, it's like, does he have the academic credentials? Yes, he does. Absolutely. Right. Sterling academic credentials. Yeah. Um, does, has he had a you know very prominent public position? Absolutely, he has. Um, there, there is really no good case that can be made against his legitimacy as a president of the University of Florida, and yet that culture has become so deeply slanted that it can't even see that. Um, so you know that may be another data point for how bad the illness is and uh, the nature of the remedy that has to be applied. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's, it's Ben Sass, right? I mean, it's not, um, <laughs> it's not like Amy Wax or, uh, you know, <laughs> who I love, but, you know, it's not some total bomb thrower. I mean, this is Ben Sass. Right. He's a reasonable. Matt Gates, you know, Matt right. Gates, University right. of Florida. Yeah. 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 And, and um, no, that's right. And I, I wonder, it, it's interesting to look at University of Florida in contrast to New College, uh, which is another public school, but much smaller liberal arts focused. And, um, I would say there you got, you know, uh, the guys to the right to the, uh, to the right of Attila the Hun, uh, coming into administrative leadership there. And it's kind of like the reaction is about the same at both institutions, actually. Now Florida's bigger and, and, and so there's, but, but, but I think that's really interesting when, if you see that it's like, well, you know, if we're going to get in hot water for picking this eminently, you know, moderate, reasonable, winsome, uh, president, like, why not just go whole hog and staff the college with, you know, Claire monsters? Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, that's that's uh, that's fascinating. Well, look, I think we're we're I think we're probably about ready to wrap this to a close. But I did want to I wanted to park on one thing and, and time and you are going to have to come in, but you have to be nice to the Baptists here. Okay. He doesn't. He does not have to be, right, nice. be nice. I don't. I don't have to yep. be handled yep. with care. It's okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna tee you up here, uh, Hunter, and then and then time and you and you and Hunter Hunter you can react and then time and can react. But um, I'm a Baptist as well, and I, I'm very interested in these questions of church and state. And um, you know, of course, getting a real establishment is not realistic or, or feasible, right? I don't think politicians should go out and like run on that expressly as their party platform or anything like that. But but I, I think the way I see it, there's a lot of permutations of establishment, right? Like at the we have this late 20th century version that's mediated to us through the Warren court that would say having the 10 commandments in front of your courthouse, <clears throat> having a prayer in the public school is establishment. Um, yeah. But then we can go back to the, you know, perhaps the, on the other end of the spectrum, a very strict sort of establishment would be an arrangement where the state says nobody can preach unless they have a license from us. 
right? And and I think that I think that Baptists, like if you look at the, the SBC, they passed a resolution I think in the in the 1920s that said we support blue laws, like the government should have blue laws in place, so yeah. the Sabbath law, right? That's the Christian Sabbath. I, I think there's a lot of room to carve out. Um, what what precisely what sort of establishment Baptists can get on board with and what they cannot, and I, I am sympathetic that we cannot get on board with the most strict version of establishment. But but um, you know, there's a there's a wide spectrum of what's called establishment that that we can be more open to. But curious to hear your your reaction to that and where you would you know where would you would perhaps recommend drawing lines. Yeah, well, so I actually think that part of the reason we have this crisis in liberalism uh, is because liberalism has, throughout its existence, been underwritten by Christianity. Um, you know, first first by Protestant Christianity, uh, and then <clears throat> over time by later 20th century uh, Catholic Christianity. Uh <clears throat> and so so liberalism worked really well when you had an unofficial Christian establishment. Uh no question about that. I think I think that's why we have a problem now is that is that the unofficial Christian establishment has kind of been dissolved or or is in the final stages of being dissolved. Um and now the question is what next? And the answer is chaos. <laughs> that, that seems to be the, that seems to be the answer. Uh, <clears throat> and so, um, you know, what, what I would like to do is to, is to go back to an understanding that, that a, a nation like the United States d- is not come out of a, um, <clears throat> a tube in a laboratory. Uh, it is to some extent organic. Um, and there are, there are, you know, uh, there is a certain culture, a certain um, religion, faith traditions, you know, things of that nature. Uh, I always thought it was misguided to try to, you know, remove the the Ten Commandments from public display or, or things like that, uh, because that's a, that's a big part of who we are. You know, not even the U.S., but just in the West generally. Um, <clears throat> so, so I guess I would just say that I would have a I would have a far greater tolerance. Uh, for the understanding that a culture is not really secular in that way. I've always said that it would be bizarre for me as an American to go over to Ireland and start looking around and, you know, what's up with all this Irish crap? You know, <laughs> why, why, what is all this? You know, uh, it's part of the culture. It belongs. Right. And I, so I think that Christianity should have that kind of an acknowledged place in the United States. It's just that I, I disagree with, um, going to the extent of, of what I understand as kind of a, an official establishment of Christianity or a, uh, a, a Christianization of the social order. I see. Got it. Well, I, th- I think with, with your position, you're actually relatively close. Um, I, people miss this in, in Stephen Wolf's work, but he's actually, um, he's actually not embracing a total establishment in his work. Right. And he's, he's a guy who has read the founding and, and, uh, and I think he would say the strictest permutations of establishment would be um, somewhat inconsistent with our civic tradition. And so he would, he would actually not necessarily, he would say that's permissible in theory, but not necessarily prudent for the American uh, state nation. Um, so I think we, we often get fixated on these debates in my view, and they're not, 
they're not particularly realistic or eminent scenarios. Um, and uh, probably like good co-belligerencies are uh, frustrated partly because people get fixated on these relatively theoretical disagreements. But um, Timon, I know you're probably itching to, uh, to weigh in here. So what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with what you, um, in many ways, what you just said, Josh, um, you know, the, I, of course, in, in principle, um, think a, you know, a total strict, you know, whatever the, the platonic ideal sense of the word establishment is perfectly acceptable, in fact, desirable in many ways, but this, you know, as, um, you guys have already mentioned throughout this conversation, and I would agree with uh, all of all of our political judgments and actions are subject to prudence. And part of the prudence or the prudential aspect of this inquiry is to is to consider the traditions and practices and customs of, of the people you're governing, right? So this is assuming we're in the position where we could we could uh, you know place an establishment if if we wanted to. But you got to consider, you know, it's like Aquinas says, any changes to law. Um, is necessarily violence. So you got to decide when violence is um, appropriate and it's not always appropriate. And that's why he gives the example of like eradicating brothels in Paris, right? He just thinks it's probably impossible and too disruptive. And so w- if he had a blank slate, would Aquinas then introduce broth- brothels? Absolutely not, right? He's not saying that. Um, so if, if I had a blank slate, if I was, you know, in Massachusetts Bay in 1630, I'd do... Uh, exactly what they they did except i'd have more presbyterian polity right so that it's great um but things do do change and i think by the time you get to the founding which you basically have the the real you know i always say i want to live in a country not an experiment if that's okay with everybody else i hate calling american experiment but um what they do experiment with i think is basically what i i will always say is the you know the piece of augsburg transplanted to to the colonies you've got various groups of establishment various degrees of establishment and they want to see if you can kind of uh, without eroding those traditions and without um outlawing these things see if you can hold hold the uh, the republic together with with a bunch of mini republics right and they, it takes them a couple tries to figure out how to manage this so i think that's a perfectly acceptable settlement state of affairs um, you know, the, the Baptist um, actually probably out of a lot of anti-Anglican animus, you know, destroy the establishment in Virginia, very unbaptist of them uh, to go after the Anglicans that way. But, um, you know, very, you know, I always I always joke with other Baptists of, you know, it's really it's really ironic that you guys want to, you know, you, <laughs> you want to impose a view of church and state on the rest of us. But you're all about non-imposition anyway. No, those are bad jokes. Um, so I think, but what you get is is a very varying degrees of establishment, and then you know the process of disestablishment at the sort of official level that Hunter was mentioning, which I would I would list at the time as um, <laughs> even by that point, preaching licenses were were going by the wayside. It's really about the taxation, the parish tax at the time, and even Massachusetts in 1780 um, just has a general requirement that you do pay for ministers, but if you left the established church, you could allocate your funds elsewhere. You know, I think that's a decent settlement at that point to recognize, you know, some dissenters. Of course, the entire scope of their worldview is Christian at the time. Um, we'd have to, you know, include some people we think are heterodox in that, but it is still generally Christian. Uh, the common law recognized e- even in America, you know, this general Christianity um, as being, 
you know, p- part of part of our legal system, even our standards, and you have to have those. Um, so I think it was an interesting try, an interesting thing to do. I wish we could have tried it longer. And for various reasons, it it was eroded, I think, more quickly than it naturally would have been. Part of that is is post-Civil War stuff, you know, that the Civil War, whatever you think about it, some moves were made that were necessary at the time, but they did erode the original structure of the polity. Um, and that would get us to things like Everson through the process of incorporation. That's the nail in the coffin. Um, but back to so that, you know, the, this is a, the Christian nationalist stuff. Last thing I'll say on that is like, you know, it's it's a heuristic or it's a it's an occasion for a debate um, about, uh, you know, political models and, and getting back to to sort of less approved political models and, and thought processes. And I think in terms of resourcement of the Protestant tradition, it's very important to, to facilitate that. Um, but the, the importance, for instance, of talking about, you know, what are the, what are the in principle, the merits of establishment is helpful today because then it, it enables you if you have a theory of establishment and why it would be acceptable to some degree or another to then resist things like yeah. drag queen story hour. And be like, look, uh, you know, New York is enforcing blasphemy against Jesus Christ in the 19th century. Uh, surely I can avail myself of obscenity laws, even though David French says it's, you know, it's the blessing of liberty that these things. Tra- so I think it, it changes a perspective. It's not that you can get, an, you know, the establishment I want tomorrow and probably never. But the but it, it is a, a paradigm shift. I think that's what's important. It's a it's a sort of muscular paradigm shift that. Uh, goes back to some of what's occasioned the discussion between you two. Um, so I think it's useful and I, th- I think people should see it that way um, instead of, and, and resist the knee jerk freak out. Right. And and then say, okay, what's, what's this really facilitating as a discussion, as a historical assessment and, and all these sorts of things. Um, and it's, and there's a worthy debates to have about even the historical record, um, which has been in many cases hidden from us. Um, and I think is being revealed further. So, you know, I think all this is productive is, is my point. Um, I, I would probably be more, uh, more to the right than Hunter is at least, at least rhetorically or polemically, as you guys were discussing and, and comfortable with being more of a provocateur. Um, but I think, I think, even, you know, willing participants that are probably only going to be uh, stubborn classical liberal, liberals like Hunter and willing to actually still have debates, they're few and far in between, can see the merits of some of what's being talked about. I yeah, I mean, so let me just clear. say, I mean, uh, I love, uh, you know, so it's funny, The um, in law school, I used to have a professor, old, old liberal, you know, old lefty, and he would talk about how the young liberals would always complain about the old libs, right? The old libs, they're, they're you know, they they, they won't go far enough, things like that. Um, so in our conversation, I feel a little bit like an old con. Uh, but but that having been said, that's okay. And, and the other thing Normies, is, you know, yeah. you guys, I, I love to observe the, the discussion about, you know, um, like gently, gently criticize left, punch hard right. You know, uh, I never, I never punch right. You never see me. <laughs> Never see me doing that, right? I am uh, so while I while I think I have some disagreements with Christian nationalism and Steve Wolf and stuff like that, you never see me going after those guys, right? Um, and I have also listened to an incredible mm-hmm. amount of the uh, is, it, is it Brian Sauve? Do you guys know who I'm talking about? Uh, is it is uh, that how you say it? it? They, they have the podcast. I pronounce it. Yeah, I know King's Hall. 
Yeah. The, the, um, yeah. And, and so, you know, you I have yep. heard them talking about Christendom 2.0, right? Um, and it's, I mean, it's, th- th- there's no doubt that that's very evocative and it's kind of exciting. I've, I've been to Freiburg, Germany, and I've seen the cathedral in the middle of the city, just, just absolutely in the dead center. Everything is built around it. I can imagine, you know, Christmas Eve, 1732 or something like that. And all the people can converging upon this structure. It's a beautiful, a beautiful thought, a beautiful idea. I wish I could see it. I wish I could participate in it. Um, but I'm also very deeply affected by uh, the sociologist Rodney Stark's analysis uh, and his analysis, which is hard to refute. And I'm, you know, I'm, and I'm not trying to start a whole new debate as we're near the end here. But, but his his, his analysis is that establishment weakens a faith uh, that uh, that it leads to uh, you know very lightly held, uh, trivially practiced faith. Um, and that, and that the place that was the the greatest example of establishment, which would be Western Europe, is today the most secular place on the planet. Uh, so you know, I'm just I'm sort of disciplined by that, even even as much as I find a lot of this establishment idea attractive. I have two I have two yeah. quick things that I want to ask you, Hunter, because I've thrown this I've discussed this. Uh, Andrew yeah. Walker will make the same point, right? I'm good. I'm good for yeah. the Andrew. I, I appreciate him. Um, so he'll make the same point, and it's not that there's um, nothing immediately sensible about that, or it, it kind of yeah. checks out in, in a visceral way. I would, I would, I've asked him a couple times, and and this, I just ask you if you have any any thoughts on this. Is is two things. So the first one would be connecting back to Josh was talking about regime cycles, you know, anticyclosis and these sorts of things. Um, it seems to me that there's there's a on all finite things there's a clock. And including Western Europe yeah. and those establishments there. But I would say, you know, let's throw all the material conditions aside that kind of, you know, living in, in medieval in the medieval period would have been tough for us softy liberals, you know, conditioned by our, our economy to, to fathom. But let's let's assume they were generally happy um, because it's all they knew. And they had a pretty good, uh, you know, Western Europe had a pretty good run is what I would say. It lasted a really long time, longer than what I would predict our regime will last given the way it's going. So that would be one thing of, you know, there's a, there's a clock on everything and it went pretty well. The other thing would be um, the sort of causality aspect of does, this seems equally plausible to me because I, I can't figure out how either case can be falsified. Is it the case that secularism preceded dis, disestablishment, meaning that there was a, an active, such, such as in France, I would say it's a forced disestablishment uh, through um, a, an aggressive secularism rather than an organic kind of movement yeah. of disestablishment. Therefore, it's not that establishment caused secularism and then its own demise, but was rather attacked by, you know, some some um, forces that probably should have been controlled better. And so it's the point of which, you know, it's a chicken and egg question because we realize they're coinciding in some way. Um, so I would just question whether it can be proven that establishment actually yeah. leads to secularism or to, yeah. to the diminishment of a faith, um, because I don't think the thesis can be falsified. So it, the alternative is at least <clears throat> – No, that's, that's really good. Um, I think that uh, – so I think that the most plausible case that can be made for the uh, – you know, Andrew had kind of a funny critique of Christian nationalism as Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, but – 
But I think that I think that there is a sense in which it could be plausible. I mean, the uh, the Bolsheviks, uh, despite their claims, were never the majority. Uh, what the majorities did was they had very forceful and determined leadership and they managed to capture a regime um, and affect the course of people's lives for several decades. Uh, <clears throat> so I think there is an extent to which people are uh, not all that committed to anything um, and that they can be led. Uh, and so something like this is potentially <clears throat> plausible in that sense. <clears throat> I think that the thing that probably led to the most secularization in the U.S. and abroad is war. Uh, you know, Mark Knoll uh, has claimed that probably the most secularizing event to happen in American history was the Civil War. Um, so, you know, uh, you, you take that situation in Europe and the devastating wars they had, um, and you, there's a pretty good case there that maybe maybe that actually secularized people more than, than um, establishment. Right. Yeah. You actually made a very, uh, to make you less normie, you made a very Curtis Yarvin point there saying most people actually aren't committed to anything and therefore are really easy to lead. He makes that point all the time. So you're more, <laughs> See, you're more I thought being a normie know. was a good thing. Is being a normie a bad thing? Oh gosh. Like, yeah. Being, we can have, a, we can have another episode where time and just, uh, just goes through the lexicon of, uh, high, you know, terminally online, uh, new right jargon, uh, Okay, so I got I got a I got a small I got a small concession of being based on something. Yes, yes, yes. Um, right, good. Yes, but you also may not have realized how many times. You've yeah, exactly. Twitter exactly. At this point, if you thought normie, yeah, was a I mean, good I, I thought like I've seen references to a normie politics, and I'm like, that's good, right? That's yeah. I I think um, Hunter, you touched on something really important. Yes, I think that there's. Among the more thoughtful new Christian right, we can call them right. Not all Christian nationalists, but in, in that in that crowd, um, I think there's a lot of awareness that yeah, this is like people know this is a current minority position. They also realize like getting from the theory to an effective political program, like most of that work is to be done. Um, and to your point, um, you know, what does it look like? Does it look like? the prevailing cultures upstream of politics, let's make movies that put forth an inspiring alternative way of life that just changes the hearts of people across the country that leads to civic renewal. Perhaps that's how it goes, right? I do think that there's a lot of people who think that, and with, with justification, like our political system is, is very frayed right now. You know, there's, um, you know, the, the guys at Claremont would say we're, we're undergoing regime change politics. And they don't, they don't mean by that, you know, necessarily that we're 1917 Russia or something, but there's a lot of things that are up for grabs. Norms are being broken. Um, you know, there's, there's interest in, um, you know, I think increasingly you're seeing um, sovereignty is an organic thing, right. And it arises from sort of the acclaim of the ruled and you're increasingly seeing, I think, demands for sovereignty from governors or from other, you know, the states are dual sovereigns in our, in our, in our uh, program, right? We know that. And, and over time at different points of our history, the federal government has kind of legitimately claimed more sovereignty. And then at other times the states have legitimately claimed more sovereignty. And I, I do think we're in a secular trend right now where sovereignty is devolving to states 
the federal government is very gridlocked. We're, we're a very divided people. And so I think you're increasingly seeing um, states being willing to, like able to exercise and act with the acclaim of the governed behind them, like a greater legitimacy relative to the federal government. And the effect of all of that, I think, is that um, we're, we're at a time where there's a lot that's up for grabs and well-organized minorities uh, you know, could actually potentially achieve quite a bit uh, right now. I agree with that. I totally, I totally embrace that statement. Um, well, well, uh, great. I think that <laughs> um, we, we agree on everything. Uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> hey, Hunter, we, we should probably give this a wrap. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been a, been a pleasure and a privilege. Um, you know, thank you for the good work you're doing out at, out at union and, uh, you know, I'll give a, I'll give the quick pitch. Uh, I went to Union. Uh, I stayed in the faith. I got a great intellectual formation there. Um, you know, I would uh, I speak highly of Union, and uh, in large part because I know people like you are there, uh, walking students through important ideas, and and uh, all from a from a Christian perspective. Thank you. <clears throat> Time and thank you for joining us today as well, um, folks. With that, we're going to. With that, we're going to call hey, thanks, this one guys. a wrap. Um, if you enjoyed this conversation, uh, you can hear other ones like it on Apple, YouTube, the American Reformer podcast. Please subscribe, leave us a review. All of that helps us grow and get the message out. Um, you can also check us out at AmericanReformer.org or on Twitter at AmReformer. Um, and uh, please, please follow our stuff there. Hunter, uh, people can find you on Twitter. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm the first of the of the Hunter Bakers, so <clears throat> so I'm always at Hunter Baker. Wonderful, wonderful, early adopter. That's a strong move. Um, excellent. Well, thank you so much, and y'all have a great rest of your day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer. <laughs>